Hi everyone, this is Mehdi Sainaji and this is the podcast Cool and Anvil. We have a great guest today, Mr. Francesco Cavatorza, a professor of political science. Let me say something in way of introducing our guest and then I will ask him to continue that. Francesco Cavatorza holds a PhD in political science at Trinity College Dublin from the Trinity College Dublin in Ireland. For the last 10 years, he has been a professor of uh, political science at Laval University in Canada. He's been carrying out research on Middle East politics for over two decades and has published extensively on authoritarianism, Islamist movements, political parties, elections, and the international politics of the region. And full disclosure, I know him very well. I like him a lot. He's one of the most popular professors I've, I've ever met, and not just by me, by all his students. I think, I'm, I'm sure they will <laughs> witness, be, be more witness in that. So welcome, Francesco. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Maddie, for the invitation to the first episode of your podcast. Very happy. I'm, I'm starting it with you. And I'm so, very humbled by the invitation. Excellent. Um, Francesco, um, tell us a, a little bit more about yourself. Why Middle East? What, in, what got your interest uh, in this regard? And wh- why have you been studying it for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years? Thank you for the question. I think I, if I remember correctly, because it's, it's been a long time. Uh, no, my, my interest uh, uh, was always on issues related to democracy, democratization, uh, how to build a political system. And obviously, having kind of felt the full impact of the end of the of the Cold War, you know, it was a massive moment in, in history and the democratization of, of Eastern Europe, the collapse of communism. It was all very kind of interesting to me from a kind of personal point of view as a, as a, as a citizen. And then, obviously, I started thinking about that maybe there were other regions where these kind of processes were taking place, and uh, but but nobody seemed to pay much attention to it. So in the early '90s, when the attention of the world was on Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, uh, Latin America to 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 a certain extent, um, there was not much done really about process of regime change or attempts at regime change in the on the southern bank of the Mediterranean. So obviously, having kind of grown up in Italy, we have neighbors to the east, of course, and so that's why Eastern Europe was interesting, but then Eastern Europe was interesting to the whole world. But we also have neighbors just just to the south of us. In fact, some of our neighbors are closer uh, 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 to the south, or some are actually closer than some neighbors to the east. But nobody seemed to pay that much attention to to that. And so I got interested in, in kind of the politics of North Africa to begin with, when I was doing my BA, then my MA, and then I decided to do my research project on on that when I was doing my PhD. And since then, it's been, I started my PhD 25 years ago, exactly. So since then, it has been all about the the, the Middle East and Middle East and North Africa. And then obviously, you know, kind of current events uh, made sure that the region became more central, more prominent. In fact, probably the most prominent region in world politics over the last 20, 25 years you know, from from September 11th to the war in Iraq to uh, the, the 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 regional rivalries to the Arab Spring to the Islamists winning power, and now again with a 
new round of 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 the conflict between Israelis and and Palestinians. So it's something that I've always been interested in since the early mid nineties, and now now I'm lucky enough to be able to read and write and and teach about teach about that. Excellent. Yeah, uh, I mean, you have chosen a region with a thrilling minute. I mean, it has never, never <laughs> been completely quiet in that re- in that regard. But on, on that personal note, um, I mean, Italy was kind of shocked by the Cold War and all, all that. I mean, the, the the Communist Party of Italy was huge, and suddenly it went like it bombed completely, right? Yeah. I mean, well, uh, I think Italy was one of those key. Western countries, they they belong. Italy belonged to the to the Western camp, you know, to the liberal, democratic, pro-U.S. camp. Uh, but the paradox was that one third of the electorate, at least at its peak, voted for the Communist Party. But even that Communist Party, particularly starting in the early late, I would say late sixties, early seventies, had already kind of broken with with Moscow and, and Soviet communism. You know, it was the Italian way to communism, later baptized or labeled uh, Euro communism. So it, it was not really a communist party linked to Moscow any longer. Uh, it had found kind of an autonomy or independence. It always was reasonably autonomous and independent from Moscow, partly due to the size, in fact, of the membership and its electoral strength. But yeah, obviously, the, the end of the Cold War meant a massive change in the domestic political landscape. It was interesting to see. And eventually the disappearance of, of the Communist Party and, and today kind of the disappearance of the left. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure Italy is not really the only one to have experienced that over the last few years. No, probably not. Uh, also, I'm not quite sure about it, the Communist Party of Italy, but like some Communist parties in, in Europe, especially France, don't quite fare well if you go historically through their positions in regards to the Middle East or North Africa, right? No, but I think in part is, you know, Italy does have a colonial legacy, uh, but it is not something that Italians are particularly interested in or care about and it doesn't weigh as much as it does maybe for countries that have colonized more deeply and more extensively like France and and maybe the UK so so I think the dynamics are are are, are slightly different and the communist party of Italy was more always at the, at the time there was a term third worldism uh you mm. know kind of in favor of the liberation of the peoples who uh felt that they were marginalized repressed and and colonized and so on so I think that they had a reasonably different positions from from what others had in Italy, but also in Europe when it comes to, for instance, the the Arab-Israeli conflict. But also that was part of the kind of communist DNA of anti-imperialism and anti-Americanism in 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 many ways. Excellent. So Palestine and Israel. When when did you get interested in that? Well, I think when one becomes interested in the region, it is kind of inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> that, that one is interested in such a defining conflict. It, 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 you know, it has it has been a defining rivalry conflict in the region for 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 a long time, and so it is inevitable that you become tangentially interested in it, even though it might not be your primary uh, uh, area of of expertise and or interest. I think it is inevitable to to talk about it, to become interested in it, to read about it. And then in 2002, I had the opportunity to uh, 
to live in Israel for uh, in Israel Palestine for three years in Jerusalem to be to be exact, and obviously at a time when the Second Intifada was 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 taking place and you know the the, the tensions were particularly high, so it was a I wasn't doing research on that. I was just living there. And so it was obviously then something that became part of my almost daily life. So it was inevitable to become even more deeply kind of interested in it and and living it in in a way. Although I have to say, as an expat, you are obviously privileged. Uh, uh, You know, you, you, you can play the role of, well, I'm just here. Uh, I'm, I'm just watching. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just kind of watching from 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 the outside. You know, I'm just outside looking in. I'm not not I'm not a participant in this. But it, but but the experience itself was 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 incredible. I don't regret it for a minute, uh, and I learned a lot from it. I think, and and maybe it has allowed me after that to to kind of speak with more nuances and and maybe with a less partisan uh, view of 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 how things are i think that 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 capturing the complexity of it uh, can be done only by living there so i think i was lucky enough to 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 have that experience and then after 3 years you know it was was over uh, it was good and that that was that was the end of it i i know i went back a couple of times since but but for work and for a short period of time so so it you know, it, 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 it is a formative, it was a formative experience in many ways, not only in the dynamics of that particular conflict, but also the ability of understanding the conflict as just a conflict. There's, there's nothing particularly special about this conflict. You know, we will yeah. talk about it a bit more, I guess, but the dynamics themselves of the conflict are not really special or exceptional. And, you know, in part, having come from Ireland, the, the inevitable and sometimes silly, of course, comparison with the conflict in Northern Ireland always always came up. But but some traits of the conflict can be seen across conflicts. So the, the one in Israel-Palestine is not necessarily exceptional, exceptional in, many, in many of the dynamics that it has. And agents and actors and the reasons probably, but the structure... Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the way the agents uh, behave, the, the way the ideology is is shaped and shapes events uh the way in which uh there is a construction of the other uh and the construction of the self at the same time in in, in the conflict but also the external you know structural constraints who's who's allied with who and what are and what was interesting was always to me also the dynamics within each camp you know when there's a conflict of course you know and it's normal enough and the newspapers do it and everybody does it you know there's the israelis and the Palestinians. And we tend to forget, because there's a conflict between the two, that in fact, there are very complex dynamics within each camp, in fact, that, that have a bearing then on the conflict. Sometimes we lose sight of that, and, and maybe we, we should not do that. It is kind of difficult because uh, it's always like the Israel-Palestinian uh, conflict is always connected to a Huntingtonian understanding of the world. like. Uh, us versus them, uh, Browns versus whites, uh, all that, like Arabs versus, versus Jews. So, I mean, this 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 time around seems a little different. The 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 understanding of it, not like the the reactions to it, not the the thing itself. But this time around, you you see a lot of Jewish people. 
going and uh, blocking stations in the United States and uh, some other places in Europe to to ask for a ceasefire. So you do see, you do see uh, different reactions. We'll, we'll probably get into the details of that. Uh, but for now, can we can we use that as a segue into the history of the conflict first, and then? I mean, the history, everybody probably knows a little bit about it, but yeah. I think that, you know, that they, obviously we're not going to sit here and, and, and tell the whole history of the conflict in all of the twists and turns and events and lost opportunities and missed opportunities and, and who's 500 right. Books. Um, I don't think it's very fruitful. And, and funny enough, to me, the story does not even begin in the Middle East. The story begins in Europe. Yeah. I think that is what, as well, we tend in to... Germany. No, no, no. I would say Europe in general, not even, not even Germany. Even before that, okay. Oh, so, so yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think what we tend to forget in many ways, and and I and I find it strange, is that there is, uh, rightly so, uh, there are a lot of people talking about the impact of generational trauma on you know minorities, on on discriminated against groups. I'm thinking about, for instance, the First Nations here in Canada or African-Americans in, 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 in the U.S. I don't think they like to be called African-Americans in any way, but Blacks in America and so on. This kind of idea of the generational trauma that, that basically means that the subordinate position has, has an impact on individual lives throughout the generations. I think we tend to forget that that for the Jews, and particularly for the Jews in Israel, but I would say for the Jews more Broadly, there, there is a pretty powerful generational trauma that they have to deal with and that informs in many ways the way they think about themselves, the way they think about their condition, and inevitably the way they think about their state and their security and safety. That mm -hmm. is why, for me, the real story begins with anti-Semitism in Europe in particular. And it is not something that has always been confined to a kind of short period of time, let's say the 30s and the 1930s and the 1940s in Germany and Austria. You know, it, it, it is not, it is not this. Anti-Semitism is probably one of the longest tradition uh, uh, that the West and Europe uh, more broadly have, have held for, you know, for, for, for centuries. Um, you know, there were uh, cartoons depicting Jews as blood suckers and, and traitors to the nation and so on, going down the age, even, you know, in the Middle Ages and even before that. So I think their history of discrimination, the history of anti-Semitism, particularly in Europe with, with you know, regular episodes of, of incredible violence against Jewish communities, uh, you know, the famous pogroms, you know, where innocent Jews would be just slaughtered uh, for, for no particular reason to blame them for something that had happened, whether it was an economic crisis or a political crisis or some sort of religious crisis, I don't know. Um, I think we tend to forget that the real story begins in Europe. And so Zionism, which is the ideology behind the creation of the state of Israel, is an ideology that is a reaction to centuries of discrimination, repression, and violence. Uh, which obviously has its peak then in in the Holocaust. And obviously Germany has taken responsibility for that. But I don't think we should forget that many other countries in Europe were, if not delighted, at least quite happy to contribute to the solution 
that the Germans had found by shipping to Germany their own Jews, whether you know more or less willingly or not. The French participated quite happily. Quite a few of the Eastern European countries participated quite happily. So, so the idea that if, if generational trauma is something that we believe in and we recognize and we think it really exists, I think it should be recognized for those who have also suffered immensely. And this is this is the Jews. My my point here is not to justify what is going on today, sure. but if but we, but if we want to explain. I think we need to go back in history and, and inevitably we have to contend the history of anti-Semitism. And therein lies the paradox, the creation of the state of Israel to safeguard the Jews, where finally they can have a place to themselves where they are a majority, where they will not be marginalized, where they will not be repressed, where they will not be the victims of violence. The paradox is that it comes at the expense of another people that is in fact very little or nothing to do with the anti-Semitism that Jews experienced in Europe. So in a way, what Europe has done, it has externalized its problem and made it a problem or a question for uh, the Arabs of the region on which now Israel has been established. And this has been recognized by quite a few intellectuals, in fact, both Palestinians and Israelis. So if you if you read Amos Oz, you know, the Israeli writer, uh, he, he also mentioned that the, 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 the struggle between Israelis and Palestinians is the right, is, is, the, is, is a struggle between two peoples who are both right. So, you know, the famous right versus right. You know, we always try to think in terms of right versus wrong, but he says yeah. it's right versus right. But Edward Said, the Palestinian now intellectual, I think one of the, the, the best known, he yeah. He also says something similar when he thinks about, you know, we we Palestinians are the victims of the victims and we are the refugees of, of the refugees. refugees. Uh, and it's this story that is really that is really important if we want to explain uh, in part what is what has been going on and what is going on today. And in particularly the difficulty that the two peoples have in recognizing their respective narrative as a valid one. Both historical narratives are, are deserving of empathy, but obviously it is impossible because they both claim an absolute right and also they claim victimhood. Yeah. This, this translates badly into today's politics because obviously then we have to look at facts on the ground and Israel is a much stronger power than than the Palestinians or Palestine live militarily, diplomatically, economically. And 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 that is that is also true. And so that feeds into this kind of uh, uh, idea that that Israel has no place in the region in some ways. But as I said, if we look back at how Israel got created, it is difficult to see how it could have been done in any other way. And the Palestinians today are the victims of the ones who were victims. And it's really complex and it's very easy to moralize and judge from the outside. But I think if we 
try to understand a bit better the motivations, the, the narrative within each camp, I think we do a greater service to, to understanding. Not necessarily to peace, by the way, okay? But, but to understanding yeah. at least, yes. And maybe we will avoid the uh, spectacle that we see today on TV, in the media, I guess on social media as well. I'm not on social media, so I wouldn't know, but from what they yeah. tell me anyway... That, that it's becoming like a football match where, where one picks a side and then you support Six. your side and you hate the other side. And I don't think we, I don't think that leads to understanding. This doesn't mean that there is no justice in the causes of the ones or the other. But if we treat it as a football match, I, I don't think we can go, I can go very far because at the end of the day, it is not a football match, is it? No. you don't get a trophy at the end of this what what you get is a lot of death destruction and even more hatred i don't see why cheerleading for one side or the other i don't see where it leads us Uh, uh, i mean i can see why we do it in the short term i'm not sure to what it leads us in the longer term yeah um uh, for a football fan justice has nothing to do with it like you you, you you want your win and you want your goal, so <laughs> you, you don't care how how you get. No, exactly. Okay, so um, that's the big picture. Let's go into like real small details and nuances. We were talking a little bit uh, before, and you, you were telling me about the complexity of Israeli parliamentary um, democracy. Let's call it, um, or the the representative uh, aspects of it and how it plays into this cycle of violence, this, this ideology of, uh, we could call it victimhood, you can call it uh, the, the will to power, you can call it whatever you want, but you're saying that the system itself is at play here, the system gets people like Netanyahu to, the, to, that, to that chair. Yeah. Um, so could you tell us about, more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was, I, I'm going to go back to what I said before, which is something about the complexities and the dynamics of each camp and how those who come to make decisions, like Netanyahu, for instance, get there and who supports them and who doesn't. I think also it is important to, to remember that, that the key date of 1967 and then 1973, if you want to go back to history, which is the Six Days War. I think this is where the real issue actually is, and I think everybody recognizes this, that the, uh, the it's, it's, it's what is happening is in the occupied territories that have been occupied since 1967 that we need to kind of get back to, to understand Israel no longer as a political project to safeguard the Jews, but also the beginning of an expansionist, and in this respect, yes, colonial project uh, in the occupied territories with the building of the first settlements and the idea that this land, you know, although it contains Palestinians, we can little by little take it for us. And today we are where there's about 500,000 settlers in the West Bank, excluding the ones in East Jerusalem and Jerusalem. So that's an awful lot of people and it's an awful lot of land. And I think this occupation since 1967 is where the real kind of issue is today of Israel as a colonial enterprise, or at least as an expansion in enterprise. I don't think it applies to the state of Israel as a whole. I think it applies to to the project of expansion in the West Bank 
in particular and in Jerusalem since 1967. And this has an influence on the political dynamics and on the views and policies of Israeli political parties. What to do with this land? And obviously there are huge divisions within Israeli society and then among political parties about what to do with this. Um, there are those parties that defend settlements, that treat the West Bank as if it is already fully part of Israel. And mm -hmm. those who argue that instead, if we want to have lasting peace and security, two-state solution is necessary. And if this is necessary, then the West Bank has to be emptied of its settlements and given to the Palestinians to build their own state. And the way in which voters vote has an influence on which parties get to go to government and defend their policy positions. And increasingly in Israel, parties defending, in a way, the right of Israel to occupy the West Bank, to postpone till forever the, the, the creation of a Palestinian state, holding on to the whole of Jerusalem. These parties tend to have now, when they join the same government coalition, a majority in parliament. So the paradox, in a way, is that very small parties, or reasonably small parties, but with very strong views and radical and extremist views about the Palestinians, about the territories, about Jerusalem, can become, and often are, in fact, kingmakers. They get a say if a government is formed or if a government fails or collapses. So when we talk about the Israelis, we're actually not really talking about all the Israelis. We are only talking about the parties in government. And today, and again, another paradox, if I'm not mistaken, I think there are seven parties in the government coalition. Seven parties. That is That means that each party has a saying in what is going on. Well, not today until today, I think there's a national unity government, so it's slightly different. But yeah. up, until, up until, you know, the, 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 the third week of October, the Netanyahu-led government had seven parties in its, in its majority. And this has been the way of Israel for a very long time, coalition governments, because they have a political system that has proportional representation as an electoral system with a very small threshold, 3.25%, which means that any party that gets 3.25% or more gets represented in, in parliament, which means that there's a splintering of parties uh, uh, all the time, that the largest party, in fact, today, which is Netanyahu's Likud, actually has only 23% of support. So, you know, when we think of uh, Israel, Netanyahu, and so on, Netanyahu is the prime minister, but only 23% of people actually vote for his party. Yeah, not so, even him, his party, yeah. So, so, yeah. Exactly, his party, not even him, his party, his party. So, so that means that the largest coalition partner has 32 seats in government, uh, 32 seats in parliament, sorry, and to form a majority and therefore form a government, you need more than 60. I think you need 63. So 
And so he needs another one, two, three, four, five, sometimes six other parties to allow him to become prime minister. And obviously, when you have such a coalition, then you are getting your very few seats you need to get to a majority. You get them among the most extremists. So you rely on parties that might have only four or five seats, but they represent a tiny, tiny, tiny minority of of Israeli public opinion. Obviously, Israel, like all the other or many other uh, democracies, is moving to the right and has been moving to the right. I mean, France has moved to the right. Italy has moved to the right. The conservatives in the UK have been in power for the last 13 years. Uh, What you have is the, the, the right is a majority in the country now. The voters are mostly voting for right-wing parties. When it was not the case, and you had in Israel labor-led governments, you had, maybe with Rabin and so on, a greater chance of peace or, a, or an accord and something like that. But even, even then, you know, the Rabin government had to rely, the famous Rabin government that signed the Oslo Accords, had to rely on Shas, an, Israel, an Israeli ultra-Orthodox religious party that is not that keen on compromising on Jerusalem, for instance, or you know other issues that are vital to the success of a peace plan. And Rabin, if he goes ahead, he has to face either an enormous amount of social and political opposition in, in civil society and therefore become the victim of a, an attempt at his life, which didn't was, occur, yeah. and then he, 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 was, he, was, he was assassinated. Yeah. Or, or he can say, well, I don't want Shas in my majority anymore, but then he cannot govern because he doesn't have enough seats. So I think we forget as well that individual voters do have a huge influence on what happens. So we cannot neatly separate government and and people in one way. On the other hand, we can also not underestimate the fact that once people have voted and there's governments to be formed, governments need to be formed in Israel by taking a huge number of parties into consideration. And each one wants a preferred policy in place. So there's an awful lot of negotiations and prime ministers don't really have that much room to maneuver at the end of the day. And, and, and something similar happens to the Palestinians, by the way. The, the Palestinians had their last elections in 2006. Yeah. And Hamas won the elections. They got 44% of the vote. But the electoral system made it so that they had 56% of the seats. So... Yeah. So they do not have an absolute majority in the population, but they do have an absolute majority when it comes to seats. So they can say, well, we govern. What is so controversial about it? Which then led to the 2007 internal uh, kind of short-lived Fact. civil yeah. war in, in Gaza yeah. in 2007, and then Hamas takes Gaza and Fatah takes takes the West Bank in, 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 in some ways. Yeah. So, you know... There, there is a plurality of views about all sorts of policies, including on how to deal with Israel among the Palestinians. And there's a plurality of views on how to deal with the Palestinians in the Israeli political system. So I understand that when there's a conflict, it's Israel versus Palestine. 
I think everybody gets that. But we should not forget that, that there's a lot of diversity within both camps. So not all Israelis support necessarily Netanyahu, and not all Palestinians necessarily support Hamas. The problem is that when it comes to fighting, there's a rally around the flag element that inevitably comes into play. Yeah, in, in, in wars, no, nobody's looking to shoot their own general in the back, right? No, no, yeah. no. And also there isn't, and I feel this is where we are at at the moment, there is absolutely no real empathy between the two camps. I think that there is an element of, well, the more of them are shot, the better it is. That is, that is kind of normal and understandable in, in, in conflicts. For those who are involved in it, it's those on the outside who should kind of not rush to those kind of judgments and not to rely on those kind of emotions, because I think that is counterproductive to, uh, to understanding. And then eventually it is counterproductive to helping the two parties find uh, uh, some sort of common ground and therefore some sort of peace or at least absence of war. Uh, let's put it that way. Yeah, at least um, know, stopping of the bloodshed, right? At least for for some time, has has happened before. I mean, it's oh, not yeah. unheard yeah. of. No, 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 <laughs> unheard of. No. You were telling me about um, um, you. You mentioned uh, Isaac Rabin um, and uh, you, people who actually were asking. And you were telling me about the the national TV thing, yeah. <laughs> the, on Israeli national TV people who were uh, asking for his assassination are now in right now in the part uh, in the yeah in the yeah the, the Oslo Accords failed miserably, and therefore the failure emboldened, empowered those who actually worked to undermine the Oslo Accords. So in 1993, Hamas, after the Accords, begins suicide bombing operations in Israel. And on the other side, Jewish extremists commit crimes against ordinary Palestinians in the occupied territories. I think everybody remembers the 1994 Hebron shooting uh, by a Jewish settler, his name is Baruch Goldstein, who killed a number of Palestinians in Hebron in cold blood. Um, And they decide to kind of take out, really, the architect of Oslo, the prime minister of Israel. So obviously, once this happens, the very people who work to undermine the Oslo Accord say they won't work, then they get a chance to be in power, in a way. And they have a chance to get their own way with a very maximalist view of, um, this is an old kind of communist term, a maximalist view, <laughs> the, the, the idea that, that only, you know, total victory is, is, is what matters and that no compromise is possible. Um, and obviously when you have people with that kind of objective, it becomes really complicated to uh, have a meaningful discussion about how we coexist on this tiny piece of of land. Um, And and so we have the paradox now of people who had encouraged uh, others to murder Habin in government today in in Israel. And those who were keen to send out suicide bombers into Israel um, are now kind of the uh, 
leadership of, 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 of Hamas. Um, I, I think that is terrible news for all concerned. But, yeah. you know, there, there are reasons why we got to this point. And in part, it's because of people like them that we got to this point. Yeah. But then again, yeah. you know, they, they, were, they were elected to a certain extent. So, yeah, that's the, 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 they, they got their following the rules of the game. So, um, and also, I mean, God promises you something. What's the international law? I suppose they, they just. Don't. I, I think uh, I think discussions about international law are interesting, um, yeah. insofar as international law goes. But we all know what the reality of international law is, and we've known for for quite some time. I think it's useful to. Uh, to build on it, eventually we will get there when it will finally apply to everyone equally. But we all know that domestic law does not even apply to everyone equally. Yeah. Why would international law apply to everyone equally when even domestic law does not really apply to everyone equally? We think it does. Mm-hmm. We believe it does, but deep down we know it well, does. We pretend it does. <laughs> exactly. We pretend or we are, we are told it does, but we, we, we know we, sometimes we know better. Yeah, especially the group that is being oppressed knows knows very well it, this is not applying to them. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Excellent. So, um, okay, that's one of the camps. Uh, we know that's that's what's going on in Israeli uh, politics, at least to some extent. So, what's the other camp do? What what is Hamas? What uh, where did it start? Why it turned, well, or how it turned? As a movement. Um, it has it has all sorts of different characteristics in a way. It's, so it, it's a social movement. So it started off as a social movement, offshoot of the Muslim Brothers, the traditional kind of civil society, you know, education and providing services and kind of into a, you know this this kind of idea of Islamic charity of helping the community. Uh, uh, it also became the protagonist in a way of social life in the late 1980s during the first Intifada. It got a bit of help, financial and from 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 Israel as well, of course, because at the time it was not believed to be a particularly um, challenging problem for for Israel. In fact, you know, it was the usual divide and conquer. You know, we want to undermine the the secular nationalists and the left because they are Palestinians, because they are the ones really engaged in the struggle of national liberation, and we favor. You know, this religious group that does not seem to have much of a political agenda, then turns out that they do have a political agenda and it's kind of national religious agenda of, of, of liberation. And they, they then Hamas builds not only then a social movement, but builds an armed wing, uh, builds a political party, because obviously they participate in the local elections in 2005, I think, in Palestine, and then in the national elections in 2006. In fact, there's a brilliant book written in 2000 about the development of Hamas by two Israeli authors, which is also quite interesting and quite, and quite paradoxical in some ways. Um, a really, really good book that describes the evolution of, of the movement. And then once they find themselves in government in Gaza, well, inevitably, they have to deliver on kind of what they promised. And what they promised was an awful lot of domestic change and not of, not of reforms to improve the lives of the people of Gaza. And they also promised national liberation. So, so you know, the idea is to try to achieve all of this. And they are quite incapable of doing that for, I guess, their own kind of domestic reasons 
Gaza is under blockade. There's not much they can do about the economy, that there's maybe not much they can do about national liberation either, because their military is weak, their armed wing is what weak it can wreak havoc, as we've seen, but you know, yeah. it, it 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 does not have the same weapons and the same the same access to military hardware and the same number of men that the Israeli yes. military does. Mm-hmm. So they inevitably have to rely on uh, what once maybe were used to be called guerrilla tactics and Mm -hmm. terrorism and as we've seen here about a month ago on kind of undiscriminate violence against civilians which is not resistance to me Um, just to say we exist we're still here you know the Palestinian problem might have receded from public conscience and from political discussions and diplomatic discussions since the Arab Spring but the reality is we're still here. And I think this was a way for them to say, we're still here. You need to talk about us. You need to uh, find something of a solution for, for a problem that has not gone away, even though everybody thought that it did go away because there was no major confrontation. Uh, you know, There had been no major confrontation for a couple of years. I think the failure of their march to the wall a few years ago when they encouraged Gazans to demonstrate peacefully by marching towards yeah. the population barrier uh, obviously was not a success because despite the Israelis shooting at them and killing a good few of them, public opinion worldwide did not seem to be too interested uh, in what they were doing. With this attack, on the other hand, uh, uh, that killed over a thousand people and you know the taking of so many hostages, I think that this has been in a way a success for Hamas because now, well, that's all we've been talking about and that's all everybody's been talking about for the last six weeks. So, yeah, but is it far-fetched to think uh, it, it was the goal, it was the, at least one of the goals to... Uh, oh, I think, it was def- I, think, I think it was yeah. definitely one of the goals. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, I don't know and they haven't told us, but I think it's definitely one of the goals. You know, nobody was kind of cared about Palestine for the last 10 years, I'd say, at least. You know, there were kind of regular incursions of or or, or by the Israeli military into Gaza, you know, 2007, 2009, well, 2007 Lebanon, 2009 Gaza, 2014 Gaza again, and so on. But but the reality is politically, you know, the, the Palestinians seem to have been contained as well, uh, politically and physically too. No major attacks on Israel for a very long time. So... Yeah. Uh, the problem seemed to have gone away. You know, the kind of regular taking of land and the, the blockade, they're everyday occurrences, so they, don't make, so they don't make the news. I guess that if you kill 1,200 people, and especially if you kill 1,200 innocent people, you know, in one day, bursting out of, of a place that seemed to have been contained, I think that grabs everybody's, everybody's attention and it says, we're still here. Uh, we have not gone away. This problem has not been solved, and uh, up to you to play. And I think Hamas knew how Netanyahu was going to play it, also because he has to play it that way. And it's a short-term sacrifice, I think, in their mind for Hamas, for a greater gain in the future in terms of you know legitimacy, in terms of showing Israel up for what it really is, you know, a, mm. a savage power, a heartless power, and. Yeah. Not seek peace, but just seek the destruction of, of Palestine and the Palestinians to take the territory for itself. And I think in that they have, in a way, won 
the, the public opinion campaign. And Israel has lost it or is losing it. But, you know, if we go back to Israel, that I don't see how Netanyahu could have done things differently, to be honest. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing they're, they were counting on it. What, what better way to show the madness of a madman by poking the madman? Yeah. I think I think I think you're I think you're right, and I also think that it's a signal to the other Arab countries as well, which were all normalizing relations with oh yeah with Israel too. You know, to say you know you might have sold us down the river, but we're still here. Yeah, that could have been their last straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, the uh, the way Saudi Arabia was getting in bed with uh, Israel. Well, I mean, I'm not I'm not a military expert, so I, I don't know. You might want to get one on your blog. But I would imagine that to coordinate such an attack on Israel from within Gaza, they could not have thought about it for two weeks and put it in place. I think this, oh, yeah, this goes back quite a bit. And, it, and I think it means that, that there was, that there is, sorry, a political strategy behind this. And the political strategy seems to be to say, we exist. We're still here. It seems to say to the other Arab countries, well, you sold us down the river, but we exist. And it seems to say to kind of public opinion worldwide, and particularly to Muslim public opinion, look what they're doing to us now when, we, when the only thing that we really want is to take back our own land. So I think it worked in a way. At the same time, I think it has also radicalized the ones in Israel who were a minority and were advocating for the removal of Palestinians, in fact. And that is something that at some stage, someone, and by someone I mean the Americans, will have to deal with. Uh, do something about it. Right now, they're, they're just yeah, paying lip, lip service, I suppose. Yeah, well, they're, you know, they're saying, well, Biden is saying the things that you know, one would expect him to say. Oh, don't make the same mistakes we made in 2001, but sure, go ahead for the meantime. Uh, yeah. You know. uh, I usually don't like uh, asking people to ventriloquize, but do, do you think Obama would do the same exact same thing? I mean, I, I would imagine so, in part because of structural constraints and in part because yeah. of socialization within the American political system, yeah. where criticism of Israel from high up at least public criticism is not is not something one does. I, I, I suspect Obama would have done something reasonably similar, although by all accounts he detests Netanyahu at a personal level, but you know, he had eight years to do something meaningful about one of the real contentious issues, which is the expansion of settlements in the West Bank. He said a few times, you know, ah yeah. yeah. It drew so, so many lines, and Israel just yeah, so crossed them. <laughs> no, no, and and I think and I think that's that's something that emboldens obviously uh, uh, the ones in Israel who are more extremist or more right wing or whatever you want to call them uh, uh, against against the Palestinians. You know, if your if your big brother doesn't do anything, then then why worry? You know, yeah. why worry? It, it kind of did the same. I mean, if you, if you if you want to uh, draw an analogy, he kind of did, did the same thing with uh, Egypt. He kind of dro dropped the ball there too. He he didn't say anything against uh, the for the protesters or against uh, Mubarak. No, or, no, 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 absolutely, no, no, yeah. absolutely. And and I think I think the Obama administration never 
called al-Sisi military coup a military coup. So, mm. you know, uh, I think that tells us something about the real room of maneuvers that, that presidents in the U.S. also have. You know, there's so many other constraints on them. And besides, I also have the impression that, and I think it's borne out by, by research, that when it comes to elections, ordinary voters in the U.S. do not necessarily vote on foreign policy issues. They tend to vote more on domestic politics issues and, no, and, very true. and mostly the economy. So there is no, so you can only risk of losing capital by doing something completely different from what others have done before you. Yeah. And if the policy is to support Israel, no matter what, then a radical change might not actually be very beneficial to you at elections because few people might care about that, first of all. And in fact, you might upset the ones who would have voted for you if you hadn't changed the policy. Yeah. Or know how it will be received. There have, there have been some articles uh, saying uh, Biden is losing Democrats um, because of the reactions. Yes, of course. But then when November comes next year and a Democrat finds himself in the voting booth and it has Donald Trump on the one side yeah. and Joe Biden on the other side, maybe he'll go for the, yeah. maybe yeah. Go for the lesser of two evils. Oh yeah, they they are already banking on it. Like they have, they have there have been a lot of these uh, like Obama liberals who came out and saying, "Oh, uh, so you want um, uh, Biden to do something and lose to Trump? Oh, he's not in power yet." So <laughs> I think I think that is the I think that is how they they use tactical voting. You know, you might not like him or you might not like what he has done, but you would like him better than the alternative. Yeah, Anatole even um, made a made a when I asked this, I, I kind of liked, and um, it was saying like the way Biden's administration has to decide between I don't know security and happiness of Egypt and Israel is going to be pretty interesting to watch because um, I mean these these people have to go somewhere. Yeah. Either Jordan or Egypt. Egypt seems to be like a like a, a feasible place, and Egypt is not going to get. Uh, no. It's not going to like go easy on uh, the United States just because they want. No, no, to no. I mean, I, I I think here we go into the what happens next kind of. Thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so in a way, it is about well, now that we've had this other you know cycle of violence, which is much more intense than they used to be um, because there is actually now an entire section of the Palestinian population, all the ones in Gaza, who are on the move. Yeah. For the moment, they don't really know where to literally, go. Literally on the, on, on the roads, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so once Israel has done bombing all it wants to bomb, where do these people go? What, what is the uh, next stage? And I'm not sure, and this is, I think, is what worrying in many ways is that there is no thinking about what happens next. I mean, I think people do have an idea of what they would like to happen next. Yeah. So I'm sure that the Israeli government would be delighted if all these people went to Egypt. Voluntarily. <laughs> Volu- yeah, volu- voluntar- voluntarily. Yeah, let's say. Let's quotes, quotes. Yes, air quotes. <laughs> let's, let's say voluntarily, yeah. Um, but, but then what? Okay, even in the most optimistic 
scenario for Israel, they all go to Egypt. And then you have what? Two point something million Palestinians in Egypt as refugees? I'm, I'm not sure you want that, especially because they will not have left actually voluntarily. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, you replicate something that has been a problem for Israel's security for a very long time. And then how can this happen without the West Bank blowing up? So then what do you do? Do you raise the West Bank as well? But you can hardly do that because there's so many settlements and so much complexity and territorial divisions between the different areas are so complicated that it's going to be operationally very difficult. And And, there's no Hamas there. So what what are you going to do? But even if there were Hamas, then the ultimate solution then for the West Bankers would be the same as for the Gazans, which is made them all leave to Jordan. That's the only place where they can go. But then, obviously, Jordan doesn't want them. And the foreign minister, I think, of Jordan yesterday or the other day said, well, we are absolutely opposed to any movement of people from, from, from the West Bank. So I don't think that there's a lot of thinking behind blind violence for the moment. On one side and the other, I mean, I can see the logic of Hamas and why they did it, but what is the long-term plan? That that the Israelis scared just pack up and leave the whole nine million of them? So that's that's completely unrealistic. Kicking out five million Palestinians seems to me unrealistic and unfeasible. So, So then what? So so then some somebody floated the idea that maybe Arab armies can take over Gaza? Uh, really? Yeah, I, I, who was it? I, I, I kind of remember that, yeah. Uh, uh, what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that's, you know, not, not only, but so Arab soldiers in Gaza to do the bidding of the Israelis and repressing Palestinians and their liberation movement, I don't see it happening. And I don't think, at least again, you know, the Jordanians yesterday said there is absolutely no chance whatsoever that Arab soldiers are going to take over gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, so, but Netanyahu does not want the Palestinian Authority to take over gas. Okay, so no Palestinian Authority, no Hamas, no Arab armies. But at the same time, he said Israel will not reoccupy Gaza. So what does that mean? Yeah, because then you could read it as well, Gaza will be empty. I'm guessing that that's kind of where the uh, things are going right now, right? Like bomb them out of. But then, but then, so so he's banking on the Palestinians, all of them leaving, yeah, and forcing the Egyptians to open the border. Is that is that the plan? I mean, I don't know. I I am I'm I'm very. I'm puzzled by the fact that there doesn't seem to be an idea of how to deal with the consequences of this, aside from this incredibly extreme ideas that are, in my mind at the moment, unlikely to happen. I mean, is the US really going to sanction the forcible expulsion of 2.2 million people? Because if they think that they lack credibility now, <laughs> Wait for that time. Yeah. If that happens under their watch and done by one of their staunchest allies in the region, against the wishes 
of the other ally in the region. Big ally, yeah. Then, then the issue of credibility is no longer up for discussion. The U.S. is not credible. Not only it's not credible, but it now it encourages, or at least it supports silently, the most outrageous breach of international law and 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 in, over the last certainly decade. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Um, I'm 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 puzzled by by all of this. If if I have to be honest, because I don't see an end game. The other potential end game, which you know, I I suppose that's what maybe a lot of people are hoping for secretly, is that this round of violence makes Israelis and Palestinians understand that they have to get back to the table and seriously negotiate on the most contentious issues that divide them. That this works as a kind of, we have reached the bottom. You know, if we keep digging, there's going to be even more savage more graves, yeah. uh, 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 acts of violence in the future. Maybe it should stop here. Maybe it should stop here. With the realization that the Israelis are not going to go anywhere, Israel will exist, and that the Palestinians are not going to go anywhere. Because mm-hmm. they learned the lesson that moving means never coming back. Yeah, and the end of the story for them, yeah. So, so maybe both sides will understand that they need to come back to the table and with the encouragement of the international community and the support of the international community, they might be able to do that if the US and China and Europe are actually able to find a shared position that allowed them to put pressure on both sets of actors to go back to the table with a new leadership. Netanyahu has got to go, first of all. I think, I think he himself knows it too. Like this is the last of his, um, I mean, well, I'm guessing he's well, looking for a legacy or something. Well, or you, 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 you never know. You never know. He has, he, he has been politically dead, according to analysts, at least five times. <laughs> who, was, who was the Italian guy uh, who recently died? Like who died and came back politically? The the banga banga guy. Oh, Silvio Berlusconi. Berlusconi, yes. <laughs> I I don't think he. Uh, as much as I disliked him, uh, uh, I don't think he's done as much damage as Netanyahu has done. Uh, no, uh, no. So, uh, I meant coming back. Uh, oh uh, yeah, right. well, yeah, yeah. So so you know. And in other conflicts, we have seen moments where acts of violence have made people, individuals, not only individuals within organizations, but actual individuals in society, members of society, voters, citizens, step back and say, okay, maybe we do not want to continue down this road. Maybe this acts of violence it's so savage, so mindless, so pointless that that we need to we need to step back from this before it gets worse. And and maybe in the most optimistic view, this cycle of violence, this savagery, is maybe that moment. Yeah. Maybe. But you know. Um, I'm not actually sure it is going to be, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, just a shout out to one of your compatriots. I don't know if you know her, uh, Francesco Albanese. Francesca Albanese, yeah, I know who she is, yeah. 
she's she's going around uh, telling people exactly that so what this this is has to this has to stop I mean I don't care which part or which side you're on this and she's been like the most reasonable voice in the, this whole thing but I I know she is I, I heard her on TV um the other the other day and to me her position seems reasonable that that I would say as well, though, and I think I mentioned this already, I think it is understandable for the two parties in conflict to have, at this stage, little empathy for the other side. Um, I think it is understandable that maybe revenge and violence are necessary in a way, but what I am most kind of personally, not only as a researcher, this time personally is disgusted by, is the encouragement to further violence that we see from the outside. Abundance of it, yeah. From people who are not directly involved in the conflict. The people involved in the conflict have their own dynamics of what it means for them to be at war. For us on the outside, to be the cheerleaders to further violence, I am personally disgusted and also taken aback that we have even senior politicians, you know, prime ministers and and journalists and, you know, public opinion makers who seem to find delight in, oh, my side has just done this or my side has just done that. Mm -hmm. I think this needs to stop. Um, I'm quite pessimistic about (laughs) to actually stop or not, but I think this needs to stop. And hopefully, hopefully, the two parties in conflict will realize that further violence only begets more violence. And then it is time maybe to seriously go back to the table. It will be hard. It will be difficult. It will take leadership. It will take convincing. It will take also a lot of effort in in ensuring that their own societies are on board. But this has to stop. The only thing I'm fearful of is that maybe the two parties in conflict do not think that they have reached the bottom yet and that they're still hopeful that there is some sort of military victory to this for the Israelis. I don't think that's going to be the case. And if think if the Palestinians believe that Israel will disappear eventually, they're also think that, I also think they're wrong. History has led to the creation of the state of Israel where it is now. It is not going to go anywhere. The Palestinians are not to blame for it. No. That's the paradox. And they don't feel, and rightly so, that they owe anything to anyone. And rightly so. But an accommodation seems to me necessary. But it has to be an accommodation that satisfies the Palestinians' territorial, legal, and political claims. And that has a measure of justice. Um, a measure of justice. Mm. Without this, I don't think that shooting at each other endlessly is going to change things. And I'll, I'll leave you with another point that I think it's important to make, is that in conflicts, we are not allowed to pick our enemy. So as much as the Israelis might feel disgusted at negotiating with Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Arafat, whoever uh, uh, was and whoever is the interlocutors on the other side, 
you've got no saying in that. Yeah. You have got to deal with the ones who are there shooting at you. Yeah. And for the Palestinians, it's the same thing. You've got to deal with whoever is in front of you at the, at the moment uh, bombing you. That means sitting at the table with people who have committed crimes against humanity. The both of them. Yeah. Both of them. It's unsavory. But yeah, I mean, you, you don't, you don't, you don't uh, make a, pact, a peace pact with someone living on the other side of the world who has nothing to do with you, right? You, you made peace pacts with your neighbors. <laughs> yep. And your neighbors are the ones shooting at you at the moment. Yeah, so, at the moment, yeah. So the idea is that if if Netanyahu's idea is I'll destroy Hamas so they can better negotiate with somebody else, that is not happening. No, that's absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's not it's, happening. If, uh, if, and, and the, but the opposite is also not happening. No, yeah, no, of course not. So, so, so if Hamas is waiting for somebody on the other side who will say, well, yeah, I think you're right. We'll just pack up and leave now and go back to Europe or go back to Yemen or go back to Iraq or go back to Hungary. That's also not going to happen. So leadership is not only about asking people to make sacrifices and take a beating. It, also, it is also about the ability to say, let's stop taking a beating and shake hands with someone who has delivered the beating so that no more beatings are delivered in the future. Yeah. That would be my view of things. Uh, my knowledge of other conflicts leads me to believe that this is the only way forward. And this is why I don't understand why so many people seem to be so happy about the damage that one side does to the other, because I don't think that in the future leads to much of anything, if not a further cycle of violence, which might actually even be worse than this one. Yes, can, it can always get, get, get worse. Yeah. Yes, it can. Yeah. Thank you, Francesco. This was great. A lot to think about, a lot of details that's usually missing from these analyses on the, uh, on the Israeli-Palestinian um, conflict. And um, thank you. I, I, I was kind of hoping we, we do not go um, through any um, emotional uh, analyses, and we didn't. And thank you for that. Because sometimes, uh, I'm, I'm guessing we as people in social sciences or in political science um, uh, in particular, we kind of have to keep a cooler head than, than normal people or people in sociology for some reason. <laughs> I, I, you, you, will not, you will not let me to say anything bad about sociologists. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah, thank you for that. And uh, thank you for accepting the invitation. Thank you very much, Betty. Thank you very much to you. And uh, obviously, uh, thank you very much to, uh, to, to all your listeners who will have the patience to endure uh, this conversation. I'm sure they, they're going to enjoy listening to you. Thank you. <laughs>